1: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash acast and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: Hello and welcome to the stand with Amy Dunphy. now. What can is for filmmakers and Davos is for billionaires, Jackson Hole in Wyoming in the United States of America is for economists. All the best economists in the world, or many of them, gather every year in Jackson Hole, which is in Wyoming. And the keynote speech is made by Jerome Powell, who is chair of the Federal Reserve in the United States. And in fact, We are recording this at 12 o'clock on Friday. Mr. Powell will stand up to speak in two hours' time in the United States to discuss what he might say and, indeed, the importance of it. It's a pleasure to welcome Chris Johns, one of our most popular contributors. Chris is former chief economist with the Bank of Ireland and is now a respected commentator and has his own podcast, with another one of our contributors, Jim Power, and their podcast is called The Other Hound. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. How significant will Jerome Powell's speech be today? The word coming out of Jackson Hole is that, unlike last year, there won't be any really big news that will shake the world.
1: We certainly hope that there won't be any fireworks like last year. Because what he did last year was really spook the markets by telling them that interest rates in the United States were going to go up further and we're going to stay up for a, quite a lot longer than financial markets had hoped. Financial markets, particularly the U.S. stock market and also, therefore, lots of other markets because everything is basically takes a lead from the U.S. in so many different ways. Uh, the, the stock market has become hooked on the the drug of lower interest rates for years. One of the many tasks, uh, one of the many things complicating the task of the world central bankers, particularly Mr. Powell, has been that in order to cure the uh, inflation problem that has afflicted all of us, he has to wean stock markets and other financial markets off this opiate of low interest rates. It's been an incredibly difficult task. It's not over yet. And last year, as I say, he disappointed the markets by telling them that they've got to get off this drug, basically. Markets, like all addicts, don't want to. Uh, So some success has been achieved over the course of the last year. More success than anybody would have thought at the time, because the interest rates now are north of 5% in the United States. They've gone from basically zero to that in less than two years. And he hasn't caused a major financial accident. The addict hasn't experienced withdrawal symptoms of a serious nature. There's been the odd wobble. You might remember earlier on this year, we had a mini banking crisis in the United States with a couple of banks that the Federal Reserve authorities had to uh, stage something of a rescue. But that was relatively minor, and it was much smaller, I think, than anybody would have forecast. The task isn't over. He's still got to say something today that will be important. My guess is that he will either say interest rates are going to stay up where they are for for as long as it takes. That was a phrase coined by our own Mario Draghi when he was in charge of the European Central Bank a few years ago when he was talking about what he had to do to save the world from uh, the financial crisis. In this case, uh, I think Powell is going to be talking about keeping rates wherever he has to, to slay the inflation dragon, and that the, the, the markets, the financial markets, really, really do have to get used to the idea that going back to ultra-low interest rates, that drug that they like so much, that those days are gone. He, he could come out with a very, very mild message. This is the, my second favorite, if you like, which he just says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to watch the data on the US economy in general, and inflation in particular and let that data tell me what I have to do with interest rates. That would be a very mild message. And I think that it's less likely than him giving a fairly tough message about rates staying up for longer, similar to last year, but nowhere near as harsh as last year. So my guess, I guess it's a hope as much as a guess, uh, is that it, it won't have the market impact of last year, but it will still be terribly significant. Because it will tell everybody, not just in the United States, but everybody in Europe as well, that if anybody is betting their financial future, be it a company with its borrowings or a mortgage holder with their borrowings for their house, if anybody's thinking we're going back to where we were a few years ago of next to nothing on interest rate costs, forget about it. That will be the key message today.
0: Will he have to bear in mind, Chris, that 2024 is an election year in the United States and? Many people believe, I think we both do, that it will be between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and maybe the most consequential US presidential election of our lifetime.
1: That's right. Uh, next year is an election year in the United States and in probably in the UK as well. And on both sides of the Atlantic, in every jurisdiction where you have these independent central banks, independence does come up against political realities sometimes, particularly around elections, and they do have to tread very carefully. What their mandates say and what they repeat in public is that they are independent of the political process and that they just do what uh, parliaments or Congress have mandated them to do. In the case of the Federal Reserve, it's to keep inflation down and to promote the health of the US economy. In Europe, it's even simpler. It's just keep inflation down and that that has got nothing to do with the electoral cycle. That's all very well in theory, but in practice, of course, they have to pay heed to the political cycle. If they do something that Congress doesn't like, Congress always comes out looking for um, a scapegoat or somebody to blame or somebody to haul up in front of one of their many congressional inquiries. This time it's even more serious than that because there is always a question mark with somebody like Donald Trump or Donald Trump in particular about what he would actually do to the Federal Reserve. With regard to its independence, if they do something prior to his, let's say, election that he doesn't like, that somehow damages him, um, the the Federal Reserve, any central bank's independence uh, or status of any kind, is in the gift of the people in power. And um, it isn't necessarily a given that they will always maintain their current status. So whether it's consciously or subconsciously, they have to pay attention to politics. So I, I think that they Powell will certainly never admit to it, but he has to tread a very careful path politically as well as economically next year.
0: How relevant to Europe and to Ireland, should we say, is the American economic situation at any given moment? How much does America matter, not just to us, but to the Chinese, to everybody in terms of being the richest country in the world, such a large country, and such an influential country?
1: It matters a lot. It doesn't matter for everything. So, for example, if you were a stock market investor, you'd be very, very interested in the day-to-day gyrations of things in the United States. You'd be very interested in what Mr. Powell has to say at Jackson Hole. Every stock market is linked to every other stock market. So independently of whatever the European economy is doing, even if you've got no investments in the United States, but if you've got a pension fund, you almost certainly do because it's nearly 60% of the world's equity market. But even if your investments are only in Irish equities, they are linked. They are correlated with what happens in the United States. If the United States stock market is doing very well, then your stock market's going to do very well and vice versa. That is a, a reasonable rule of thumb. Your job might depend on what is going on in the United States. You actually might work, if you are in Ireland, for an American company. Yes. And, and there are, you, you have very direct linkages there. Um, your job, you may not work for an American company, but you may work for a company that exports to the United States. Yes. You may work for a company that imports from the United States. And so there are all sorts of linkages. You are not, we are not wholly dependent on what the United States is, but it is the world's largest economy. It's the world's largest stock market. Its interest rate moves affect our interest rates. They don't determine them entirely, but they do affect them on a daily and ongoing basis. So there are lots of connections with what going on in the United States, even if you don't think you have any connections with respect yes. to your financial well-being. Trust me, you do.
0: Now, let me ask you a question, Chris, about our own economy, which by all accounts, including taking employment data into account, is doing really well. Now, most of the, if you like, the strength and welfare of the Irish economy, we understand to be as a result of multinationals who are here paying our 12.5% at this stage, I think it's going to be 15% corporation tax. Is it giving us an illusion? And will there come a time or could there come a time when Americans, particularly of the Trump variety republicans will say look you should be paying your tax in the united states not in ireland in particular
1: well i think ireland is a study in how things can change very very quickly and if if you just think about the history of the irish economy over the last 15 to 20 years it's been boom bust boom in, in that order um, in ireland we don't seem to do steady as she goes stuff um we uh we only ever seem to be at one extreme or the other. We've either got a housing crisis or, or ghost estates of houses that nobody, nobody wants. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a study in how things can change very, very quickly. Right now, economic prosperity in Ireland is not an illusion, Eamon. That, that word doesn't apply. It's real. Right. You have an economy that is the envy of, of the world. You, you've had articles in the Financial Times this week complaining about how Irish economic statistics are so wild at the moment they're distorting the european aggregates that um, in order to try and ireland is normally so small that it it doesn't nobody bothers to look at how it affects eu level data but because of the the various ways that um, things are measured and what is actually happening in ireland because the numbers are real it's affecting uh the 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 analysis of whether or not europe is in recession at the moment for example um because ireland is growing so strongly it's it, it, in, a, in, a, in that small way, is almost single-handedly pulling Europe away from being in recession in a small way at, at the margin. So it's, so it's not, but as I said at the beginning, the, the things can change very, very rapidly, and that's what the finance minister and lots of other people, lots of economists, your own budget watchdog, IFAC, is very, very worried about, is that things can, can turn very, very quickly. I think it's the case that because of that rise in the corporation tax rate to 15% over the next while, uh, actually, the the possibility of your tax revenues going up is as strong as them them going down. The other thing that uh, Joe Biden is doing that um, Donald Trump may or may not continue, and this is the really interesting thing about America's economic policies, not just their interest rate policies, but Biden's fiscal policies, so the two arms of macroeconomic policy are really fascinating and really important for Ireland is that you've got Jerome Powell, on the one hand, with all his monetary stuff, his interest rate things that he's been talking about this week, and you've got Joe Biden's fiscal policies, which have been equally consequential for us and the rest of the world as Jerome Powell's interest rates. We talk about the interest rate side of things in the United States much more than we talk about the fiscal side. What
0: what is the the fiscal side the
1: spending and taxation policies of the, of the federal right. governments. So um, the only thing that Trump ever did was do, do a few tax cuts and put a few tariffs on China. Now, he's got big plans on both for when he comes back in, and we can talk about that at length another time. But one of the really fascinating things that nobody has made nearly enough of is what uh, um, Joe Biden did uh, when he took over, which is that he took Trump's rhetoric and... Um, uh, really built on it from a policy point of view. And he's, he's done the America first thing. And so the Inflation Reduction Act, the curiously named IRA Act, uh, the CHIPS Act, he's put through huge spending bills, which are often misnamed. And what they are, are essentially attempts at to bring jobs back to the United States uh, to uh, try and uh, head off the technological and political and strategic threat that they see represented by China. Remember, Trump talked incessantly about the Chinese threat. None of the tariffs that Trump put on China, do you remember those during yes. the Trump period? We talked about a trade war with China and how dreadful it was that Trump was putting tariffs on Chinese exports to the United States. Biden hasn't rescinded any of them. Right. And if anything, th- they are likely to be extended rather than rather than rescinded. And so Biden is trying to uh, head off the Chinese strategic threat from both a political and an economic perspective, and with the happy side effect that he hopes that will bring jobs back to the United States. Um, if you don't bring jobs back to the United States, the second best solution for Joe Biden is that you do something called friend-shoring, is that you put your factories and your uh, uh, plants and, and, and your offices in countries that are deemed uh, essentially not to be China, and not to be friends with China, and to be friends with the United States. And guess what country in the world probably stands out more than any other as uh, already a huge recipient of American corporate investment, oh. and is there for yeah you, you stand you, if if this continues, which I suspect, I mean that Trump will have lots of negative consequences for all of us. But one of the positive things is that I suspect he will build on Biden's uh, policies towards bringing stuff back to the United States. He'll do lots of negative things as well, but the, in this regard, I think Ireland could be a big benefit. So yes. There are lots of threats. There are lots of ways in which your current prosperity, which is absolutely real, could be threatened by Trump or any one of a, another series of events. But there are lots of ways in which you could imagine it continuing. Actually, so I think we need to be balanced about this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: Let me ask you about the UK, Chris. There was a headline in the Daily Express this week which referenced prosperity coming to Britain despite Brexit and the word Brexit was used because I think the Daily Express is probably the last thing or publication that believes Brexit was good for the British economy or wants to believe that. How does all of this affect the UK?
1: Let me tell you a story about the British press that's fresh off the presses, if you like. Today, the Daily Telegraph today is running a story. You know the Daily Telegraph. Don't I we? do, indeed. Yeah, we all do. It's running a story with the headline: "Middle-class vegetables disappear from Waitrose shelves." Now, if you can <laughs> tell me what, <laughs> <laughs> if you can tell me what a middle-class vegetable is, I'll, I'll, you're a better man than me. But I but know middle- a
0: few of them. But go on, anyway. Yes,
1: I know them as people, not necessarily <laughs> they're <laughs> edible. Um, and, and, of course, the, the, the wags on the Internet and Twitter and all the rest of it are saying, well, you know, the Daily Telegraph is, is for re- a Daily Express readers who think they have half a brain. Um, yeah. But the, 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 the Brexit consequences are things like half-empty shelves because um, one of the things that happened this week is that uh, I think for the fifth or the sixth time, the UK government delayed the introduction of checks on imports coming into Dover and all the other ports, and we, we, since Brexit now has happened in reality, everything that Britain exports to Europe is checked um, uh, going into Europe. That's yes. that's that's what happens. That was a direct consequence of Brexit, because they, in the first instance, were not ready. Then they didn't know how to get Dover ready because it's too small as the major number one port. It's not the only port, of course, but it is the number one. Um, famously described by Dominic Raab as, as being a bit of a surprise that it was the, the main port of entry for, for uh, imports from the European Union. Um, there isn't the space in Dover to put all the checks in place, the infrastructure necessary for the checks, and the, 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 get even getting around that, if they could, because you have to w- checks involve companies going through costly bureaucratic processes. It puts prices of imports up. So guess what? They've delayed it again. So at the moment, you have this bizarre situation that Britain has every single one of its exports to Europe checked. Every single import coming from Europe into the UK is not. So it's just another example of the way Brexit has failed, a Brexit consequence that we haven't lived up to. The idea that uh, Brexit is somehow going to, to, to lead to prosperity is at variance with every single fact. I've just told you one. I could have a long list. Of so many others, I could tell you that the way in which Brexit has damaged Britain's prosperity, it's not the only thing that has damaged Britain's prosperity. There have been many, many years of bad policies, uh, unhappy accidents before Brexit occurred. Brexit just added to. But Britain is now like, Britain's now like a, 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 feels like a badly run company um, that just, that has no, the the management of which uh, has gone missing. the, the, the ideas of both uh, main political parties are noticeable only by their absence. Nobody, nobody is able really to confront a diagnosis of the problem, let alone come up with a solution. The word prosperity and UK economy do not belong in the same sentence together. We are an ex, what we, if, it was a, if it was a company, if I was a stock market analyst describing this to you, I would say this company is now ex growth. And that's yes. a piece of jargon that means that it's just flatlining, it's not interesting, nothing much is happening, and you know, this is not a company that you would buy the shares. This is not the company you would invest in. Yes. And that's fine for stock market analysis, but if you have an economy that's gone ex-growth, that isn't doing anything very much, it's just become very uninteresting, that has all sorts of political and social consequences. And the essential one that is really troubling the UK at the moment, of course, is that it's not generating the money necessary for the public services that people want, demand and need. And so therefore you have all these problems with the NHS, with the teachers, with the junior doctors, and a whole raft of other public sector workers, and the the private sector suffering from just as it is in your country, from an inflation problem, but an inflation problem that is worse in Britain than anywhere else, partly because of Brexit. So just The Daily Express is is waging this increasingly lonely campaign to promote the very illusory benefits of Brexit. You asked me if Ireland's prosperity was illusory, and I said no. Is Brexit producing prosperity for the UK? That is an illusion. That's a delusion, actually, on the part of of, of the Express. It just isn't true. And interestingly, I think more and more people, it's not just um, partisan Pundits like me saying things like this. If you look at the opinion polls, if you look at all the different surveys in the different questions that are asked of the British people about their attitudes towards Brexit, even some of the most diehard Brexiters are now giving up and saying, Yeah, look, it's failed. It hasn't worked. It, the consequences are dreadful. There'll always be a rump of hard, hardcore support yeah, of, course, yes. of course, but it's fading. And yes. what, it's, it's shrinking in the actual polling numbers. I suspect there are two main reasons for that. The first is the effects are now so visible to everybody. It's not just dry economic statistics that people like me quote. And the second, perhaps more brutal reality, is that the typical, not the only, the typical Brexit voter seven years ago was old. And so they're shuffling off this mortal coil now. Right.
0: (laughs) Of course, Liz Truss had a brief stint as prime minister with her chancellor being quasi-kwatang. Just... Before we let you go, Chris, could you tell our listeners, and indeed me, how much damage Quasi kwa as Chancellor and Liz Truss as Prime Minister did in the six weeks they were in power?
1: I, if you look at things like the British stock market, uh, the costs of government borrowing, the cold, hard statistics, um, the damage was enormous. Um, correlation isn't causation, but the stock market in the UK now hasn't gone anywhere for really since the last century. British government borrowing costs are higher than – you do remember the pigs? Portugal, Italy, um, I'm afraid Ireland was in there for a while inappropriately, Greece, Greece, all those countries. who, And they were christened that awful name because their government borrowing costs had skyrocketed because their governments were deemed to be incompetent. Uh, that there was no governance, and that the, 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 the government, their the, the fiscal authorities, that taxation and spending authorities, had completely lost the run of themselves, and that it was just as likely as not that some or all of these countries would end up defaulting on their government debt, yes. as Greece, Greece eventually did. None of the others did, but Greece did. Um, now, nowadays, uh, our government borrowing costs here in the UK are higher than yours. Um, perhaps that's no big surprise, given what I've just said about the Irish economy and how yes. well-run Ireland is. You might laugh at that, given your own domestic politics, but when I say to you, sitting here, Ireland looks like a very well-run, cohesive place, that's what it looks like to people from overseas. Yes. That's not the case when you look at the UK. But our borrowing costs are now higher than Greece's, higher than Italy's, those countries that we used to laugh at in here in the UK yes. about how they were run. And so that's a, that's a barometer of how much accumulated damage has been done over the years, not just by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, but it's the accumulated damage done over the last 13, nearly 14 years now of Tory government. And perhaps even longer, so it's Brexit, it's all the other things that government borrowing costs are a great way to summarize a whole bunch of stuff. And in that stuff, Liz Truss certainly prominent features very prominently, but she's not the only reason why we are regarded by the, the all-important bond markets as a bit of a basket case. But um, that's the way we're looked at in cold, hard financial terms. And if you actually read the, 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 the less – uh, moving away from financial markets into, into how people think about us and write about us qualitatively in the foreign press, I think people uh, have two main reactions in, in France, where the, the press I would know well – um, I suspect also in Ireland as well. Um, reading your stuff is that people feel something of of sorrow in 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 in, yes. in a, you know once once fabulous place has fallen so low. Um, but it's also a bit of a joke, isn't it? Aren't we?
0: Yes, and it's hard to feel sorry for Tories. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> you afraid. and I
1: can agree on that, Eamon. <laughs> yes.
0: uh, well, we're both Celts. I sh- should say to our listeners that Chris is a Welsh really, and he's not really. British. Well, British, but not really English. It's the English disease. They used to be, and I'll leave you with this, Chris, when I lived in England, they were known, and the Labour Party was in power through the 70s, Britain was the sick man of Europe. That was the phrase that was used. Margaret Thatcher banished all of that, but she created the circumstances, I think, Chris, where Britain may still be considered again as the sick man of Europe.
1: I'm afraid that's right. Uh, but unfortunately, from a European perspective, uh, it's not the only uh, European, because although we're not in the EU, Britain still is in Europe. I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes. But Europe, the European economy, is also stands in stark contrast to what's going on in your economy, Eamon. In, uh, in, in, in places like Germany, they're struggling. Yes. And for different reasons to the ones why the UK is struggling. Uh, the, Germany is, has its own particular problems. It's not the sick man of Europe in the way that the UK is. But your economy really, really stands out, not just relative to your nearest neighbor, the UK, but also to great swathes of continental Europe in how well you are doing. And I think, I think that needs to be really deeply appreciated and understood and uh, not messed with.
0: Okay, Chris, as always, it's fascinating to talk to you, and uh, that's a cheerful message. But not for people here who can't afford to find somewhere to put a roof over their head or indeed to access the healthcare system. As always, we're very grateful to you, Chris. Thank you very much for joining us. That's Chris Johns. We're grateful to him always, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.